Okay, um, I want to show you a few things that are typical in America, but are the, not typical globally. Four things I want to show you. Typical in America, but they're not at all typical globally. First one is tipping. Um, and working with internationals, I, I realize this whenever these, the first three especially, um, that these are not typical things. So that's not very typical. Garbage, did you know garbage disposals are not typical globally? Um, there would be times we'd have students over for a dinner, and afterwards we'd be cleaning up and run the garbage disposal, and they were always like, what is that? And then they're like, why are you putting that in your, in your water? I'm like, well, other things go in water too. We all have toilets in our homes, right? So... <laughs> uh, this one I didn't know. I found out actually one year when we took students to a Thanksgiving dinner, yellow school buses are not common globally. There are school buses all over the world, but the yellow are not common. Um, the first year, there's a church in Burlington that hosts students for internationals on Thanksgiving, hosts a Thanksgiving dinner the Sunday before, and, the first, and they have a yellow school bus. They ended up, a couple years in, they painted it, which kind of wrecked the whole experience for the students, but the first year, a couple years they showed up, it was yellow. And the students were so, I mean, they were all taking selfies, getting group photos in front of it, because they'd seen these on American movies and stuff, but they actually got to, to ride on a yellow school bus. So, And then the last thing that is typical in the U.S., but is not typical globally, I would say it shouldn't even be typical in the U.S., is cheese whiz. Okay, cheese in a can is nasty. Um, and if you're here and offended, that's okay. It's the, the persecuted church, so I'm persecuting you today. Um, but this is not a typical... Um, typical. Even in my own household growing up, I had one brother who loved this stuff, and the rest of it just thought it was the nastiest stuff. So, uh, some houses are divided over religion or politics. Our house was divided over cheese whiz. So, let me tell you something else that's um, not typical about America. David Neff said this, most American Christians do not lead typical Christian lives. The typical Christian lives in a developing country, speaks a non-European language, and exists under the threat of persecution. That's the typical believer globally. So we want to spend some time this morning actually talking about the persecuted church. It's something I try to do every year um, because I think it's something we need to keep in front of us. One particular organization that works with persecuted churches created this continuum. I've shown this before. It goes from occasional low resistance Things like uh, people may look at you funny or give you the cold shoulder because of your faith, um, may give you a, a funny look or have some negativity, you'll feel a little bit of discomfort. Um, that's kind of societies that are at level. There's strong ongoing opposition where generally um, people are seen, believers are second-class citizens and they feel it all through society. It's not necessarily an attack on them, but they, they sense that they're second-class they don't get the services other people do, that kind of thing. And in the far right, there's this unrelenting hostility and persecution. In countries like that, people are openly mistreated, openly scorned, um, are re rejected by their family if they become a believer, may have to flee their community, have their homes confiscated, um, are taken into police stations and interrogated, imprisoned, sent to prison camps, even put to death, tortures and beatings. So, um, and as you can see, we're over here on the left side. We, left side. We are far from the unrelenting persecution that a lot of believers in the world go through. Here's a map of the 2023 reality. Open Doors every year publishes the top 50 countries where persecution is happening. The red is where it's more extreme. Um, we're going to talk about this this morning, but interestingly, in Africa, the coloring is going further south every year. 
And again, we're going to come back to that. In 2023, to our knowledge, more than 360 million Christians, I mean, get your head around that number, 300 mi- 360 million Christians experienced open persecution globally, open persecution, um, up 20 million over 2020. And of those 360, that's high-level persecution, but of those, 312 million suffer extreme levels of persecution, extreme levels. Of that 360 million Christians who experience persecution, one in seven, um, it represents one in seven Christians globally. It's one in five Christians in Africa. It's two out of five believers in Asia. Um, Last year in 2023, 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith. Down a couple of hundred from the year before, but still too high, would you not agree? And that's just in the top 50 countries. That's not in countries outside of that. Last year, 2,110 churches were attacked globally. Um, Every Year Open Doors talks about some of the big trends. One we're going to talk about this morning is Sub-Saharan Africa is continuing, continuing to become a big issue um, with the persecuted church as Islamist movements continue to push further and further south in that continent. Um, And wherever they go, they displace Christians, they torture, kill them, they kidnap them, um, wherever that's happening. In a minute, that's actually going to be our focus this morning. Also, following China's lead, more and more countries who are against Christianity are using technology to, um, to, to follow, track, and oppress Christians. We have a friend in China. Now in China, you pretty much can't go anywhere without scanning your phone into anything, anywhere you go. They know where you are all the time, and they know when you're, you're gathering, and a lot of countries are taking that up. The third thing that's kind of new, the last several years, Latin America has seen increasing persecution. There have been three countries on that list for several years, Cuba, Mexico, and Colombia. Mexico has primar- tried to the, the drug trade, trade primarily, and cartels, but a new country got added this year in the top 50, and it's Nicaragua. And so, persecution in Latin America it has been increasing the last several years. Here's why I think it's so important that we uh, keep this and talk about this, keep this in front of us and talk about this, um, because there are continually big stories that want to keep our attention, right? Things that are legitimate, right? Some global wars going on, things that we should be aware of, um, but those things can take so much of our focus. And I, and I also know that growing up an American, that our culture, we just tend to focus on our culture primarily. If I want to read good news globally, I have to get on British news. You don't get a lot of global news reading American news because we just tend to focus on us. And especially this year with an election coming, and it's an important election, there's going to be a lot of intense intensity and in all of that, Right? And there's going to be the opportunity to spend a lot of time on Fox News or C-SPAN or whatever. I don't know what all the ones are, but to, to just to take in so much of that. But all of that distracts us, I think, from larger issues globally. And I think this is one of them. I also think we need to keep our attention on this because I think it gives us perspective on the reality of faith and the reality of what it's like in our culture because we do not face what most global Christians do outside of the West. And I think it helps to give us some perspective Um, on all that. And if you remember, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times, when I was at Liberty University, um, and that's not even why I wore this today, I wore this today to be warm. Um, When I was at Liberty, one of our um, chapels, we had a pastor from Romania come. The, the, 
the communist wall had come down our second year there in 89. He was allowed out of uh, Romania, finally, and he was traveling the U.S. telling stories of the persecution he endured. And I'm not going to go into all the details. He was in prison frequently, beaten frequently. And as I've shared before, he told us that as he came to the United States, he said, all of us who are persecuted when we're in prison, we were commanded in Scripture... Um, we're commanded in Scripture to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. And he said, when we're in prison, we rejoice with Western Christians because we knew your freedom and we would pray for you. And he said, when we would eat our meal of almost nothing, we would pretend it was an extravagant meal of steak or something that Christians would be having in the West. We would rejoice with them. And he said he was shocked when he came to the United States and then tried to speak in churches how very few American churches even knew the reality of what they were going through. And who, who never mourn with those who mourn globally. And I mean, that day, I just, I've never forgotten that. And he said, this is not right. And I made a commitment then that the persecuted church would be um, important. The day that the persecuted church is normally recognized is the first Sunday of November. And I tend to move it around based upon what we're doing, but I wanted to get it in this year. Um, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 12, um, it should be if parts, its parts, speaking of the body, should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So we're just trying to take Scripture at its word and what Paul says globally with the church. So this morning I want to do three things. I want to look at a text of Scripture that relates to the topic. We're going to look at one particular country that is struggling massively with persecution right now and hear from some people from that country. And then we're going to take some time to pray for some other countries. And prayer is going to be a part of what we're going to do this morning. So I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation this morning. We're going to, last book of the Bible, if you're here and the Bible still new to you, we're going to be in chapter 2, if you want to turn there. And we're going to be reading three of seven letters. And after the first chapter of Revelation being a, a revelation of Jesus, the sovereign Lord, the reality of who He is, chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters that Jesus addressed to specific churches that were in Asia Minor of the Roman Empire, modern Turkey. So, I would like to start with chapter 2, verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? We're going to do the first three of these letters in chapter 2. To the angel, or to the messenger, um, it can be either way in the Greek, to the messenger, the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you know your deed, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the first love, you, the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna, 
right. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Pergam, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put in death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And this is the word of the Lord. And God's people said, amen. All right, you may be seated. I'm not going to do a, a deep dive into... Um, into this because there's a lot of stuff I could talk about. But central to this text that we just read is this theme of persecution, believers being persecuted for their faith. And so this morning, I just want to briefly talk about three things I see in this text, three things I learned in Revelation 2, 1 to 17. I learned some things about our world. I learned some important things about our Lord, which we just sang about. The worship songs totally fit what we're doing this morning. It's, I mean, it's, there's some intentionality, but there was... God used your choice very much for that, and then our reward will end up. So those are the three things I want to focus on. First, our world. There's two things in this text regarding our world. The first one is this, that in a, fall, in a world that is still fallen, opposition and persecution in some form are inevitable until Jesus returns. We know from history that all seven of these churches experienced persecution of some kind, but these three in particular, Smyrna, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, um, experienced it a lot. Verse 3 tells us the Ephesian believers, they endured hardship for Jesus' name. In verse 9, we're told that the church of Smyrna endured afflictions and slander. Specifically in verse 10, it says this, you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. And then he talks then in the rest of the verse that you'll suffer even to the point of death, some of you. And we're told that Pergamum had already experienced a martyrdom, right? Antipas, we'll get to him in a minute, where it says, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death. This all fits with what Jesus told his followers. In Matthew 10, 25, he said, if they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, if they've called me a demon, if they've called me a demon, how much more will they malign those of his household? And in Matthew 24, 9, where he says to his followers, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. So these churches in Revelation, they're in this last category of persecution. That's what they're experiencing. Second thing I learned about our world is this, that Satan is the one who's ultimately behind all spiritual opposition. He's the one who's ultimately behind it. He's mentioned four times in these three letters, four times. Um, Speaking to Smyrna and Blander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a scene to the church of Pergamum, 
Jesus said that Satan lives in your city. And at the beginning of verse 13, he specifically says, I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne, where Satan has his throne. Later in the book of Revelation, if we were to turn over a few pages to chapter 12, verses 9 and 12, John explains this intense opposition by Satan when he says that the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, his angels with him. So woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you and he is filled with fury because he knows his time was short. So that's why his opposition. So ultimately, in any persecution... The one who's behind it is Satan himself. The one who hates God is the enemy of God, who hates everything God has created, everything good, and he wants to destroy everything God has created and that is good. So he's the one ultimately behind it. And again, the reminder that Paul knows this, and that's why Paul says that we don't fight against flesh and blood, right? If it is a human being and has flesh and blood, they're not the enemy. He says, we're fighting against principalities, powers, and the heavenly realm. So the enemy is Satan. He's the one ultimately behind all persecution. He's the one that's holding me behind it. But I would be amiss if I just stopped here with what this says about the world. I want to talk about our Lord because this is more important. Four things, crucial things I learn about our Lord in this text. First, that Jesus knows both us and our situation. Both us and our situation. He knows our situation. In verse 13, writing to the believers of Pergamum, he says this, I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne. So he says, I know your situation. That word know in Greek is the Greek word oida, which is connected to the idea of seeing very much, so it means to be aware of. It is to see something so as to pay attention to it and know the reality, to perceive the reality behind it. So he says, I very much know. And this word know occurs several times in this text. It's always that word. I know your situation. But more importantly, he knows us. I just want to point out a few. To the church in Ephesus in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. In verse 3 to those believers, you've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. In verse 13, he says to the church of Pergam, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death. So I just want you to know, Jesus knows. He knows our situation intimately because he is El Roi. He is the God who sees Second thing we learn is that he is with us. At the end of verse 1, at the end of verse 1, we are told that Jesus walks among the seven lampstands. I want you to turn back. If you're still in Revelation, hopefully you are. We're going to turn back twice this morning. This is one of them. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 20. It says, I, he says, I walk among the lampstands. Chapter 1, verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when he says, I walk among the lampstands, he's saying, I'm walking among the churches. I am there. I am present. I am among you. And he's among us, right? Where two or three are gathered in his name. He says, I'm with you with that. And and this is so important for them to know as persecuted believers that Jesus is with them. He not only sees, but he is with them. Um, They needed to know that. That Jesus, our good shepherd, says to them and to us in the words of Psalm 23, 4, even though you walk through the darkest valley, I am there close beside you. I am with you. So fear no evil, right? So 
He was the good shepherd. So Jesus walks closely with us no matter the situation, for he is Yahweh Shammah, the God who is there. Third thing we learn about our Lord is that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Not what we just read in verse 1 where he holds the seven stars in his hand and he walks among the seven lampstands. But we're told in verse 8 that he is the first and the last. The first and the last. Uh, this is a significant, extremely significant because he's quoting Isaiah 44, 6 where Yahweh says this, I, Israel's King and Redeemer, I, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart me, there is no other God. And Jesus is laying claim to that scripture. And he's saying, I, I'm the king. I'm the redeemer. I'm the sovereign Lord in this situation. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the El Olam. I'm the everlasting God, the one who's ultimately in control of everything. And that's the whole point of the book of Revelation, by the way, is that he's in control in the midst of difficulty. And that leads me to the fourth thing I learned about our Lord, which is that he will have the final word in all of this that in the end, he will be the victor, the ultimate victor. In verse 8, we're told not only that he is the first and the last, but we're also told in verse 8, told in verse eight that he who died and came to life again. And scripture tells us, I won't go into all the Scripture, tells us that through his death and especially his resurrection, he overcame and defeated Satan, and he overcame, overcame and defeated death, and that neither Satan nor death will have the final word for us. He is the great victor. He is the one who has overcome. He is the one who will triumph over all. And that's the message of Revelation. That's, that's the big point, is that He's the one who will triumph over all, especially when you read Revelation 20, 21, and 22. If you've not read it, go to the end, and you'll see that He is the one. In the end, Jesus wins because He is Yahweh Tzabaoth. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies. That's who Jesus is. And it's because of those four things that in verse 10, he says to these churches, to one in particular, I think it's Smyrna, but he says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid because of who I am. And then I want to talk about our reward. Talk about our reward. Despite all of our, I would add, suffering and losses in this world for his sake, no matter who we are, we all experience it, right, of some kind, suffering and loss. Despite our losses for his sake, we will gain an attorney with him in new creation. Look at verse 7, what he says to the Ephesian church. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, people ask when they read this, like, well, who's the victorious one? And I'm going to let John answer that. If you'll turn back a few pages to the book of 1 John, it's only, I think, three pages back in my New Testament. Turn to the book of 1 John chapter 5. I want to show you his definition of who is victorious, the victorious one. So if we go to 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who believe Jesus is the Son of God. So the one who is victorious is the one who has new birth through Jesus, who was born again from the Father, who has put their faith in Jesus, who believes in Him as the Son of God. That's the one who is victorious according to John. And he promises in Revelation that to the victorious one who's put their faith and their trust and their commitment into Jesus, he promises that they'll eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And if you want to read about that, that's chapters, the last two chapters of Revelation, where when he talks about the paradise, which is the new creation, he talks about the tree of life there. And, you know, later you can read that um, if you've not done it. And he, that's his promise, is those who believe in him will have that. 
in the end. Look at the end of verse 10. Jesus says to the believers in Smyrna, I will give you life as your victor's crown. And if you remember from a few weeks ago when I preached on Jesus the day before Christmas, 1 John 5, 11, and 12 says, the God has given us eternal life, and this life is his son. He who has the son has life. And so when he says, I will give you life as your victor's crown, he's saying, I will give as a victor's crown to those who believe in, in me, in Jesus, I will give them eternal life. That's what the victor's crown is. And that's why in verse 11, Jesus says to believers in Smyrna, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The second death being eternal judgment. After the judgment being eternally separated from the Father. He says, I give you new creation and eternal life with me. So all that's to say our ultimate reward will be eternal life with our Lord in new creation. Where we will ultimately, he will be vindicated. We who follow him will ultimately be vindicated. We will reign with him forevermore on that new creation. We will walk with him and see him face to face. Face to face. We will have him. We will have new creation. And because we have him, we will have eternal life with him on that new creation. Is that not good news? Is this not good news? Yeah, is that not good news? That that's the reward of those who know him. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So let us all be encouraged. No matter what you're going through, let us be encouraged. I just want to talk briefly for a minute about Pergamum, specifically, because this situation, Pergamum, is most like the country we're going to hear about in just a minute. Um, Verses 12 and 13, if you'll look back, the text To the angel, the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Okay, we've already noted, it's the place where Satan lives. It was the first of these seven churches that had a martyr for their faith. And the reason is likely because, as it says here, that city was the place where Satan had his throne. He not only inhabited that city, but he ruled in that city, okay? Now, the question is, is what's he mean by that? Um, What's that tell us about the situation in Pergamum? And I just want to briefly tell you what life was like in Pergamum for believers. Pergamum was the northernmost of the seven seven cities written about um, here. It was in the Roman province of Asia, all of these were actually, which is modern-day Turkey. The city was built on and around a steep hill that rose 1,300 feet above the valley below it. Pretty, pretty amazing. It was a natural fortress. This is an overhead look. It's kind of harder to tell, but I think you can kind of see behind how, how low it is behind it. So this is where Pergamum was built. It was a strong center of paganism. Anybody who visited that city got a strong sense of how important the gods were to the people of Pergamum. There were no less than nine major gods worshipped in this city among the hundreds of minor gods that were worshipped there also. And included in these major gods were Demeter, the goddess of harvest and agriculture, um, Hera, who was the queen of the gods, Serapis, who was kind of a hybrid Egyptian god, kind of a mixture of two gods who made, became a Greek dude, uh, Hermes, the messenger of gods, and um, Heracles, who was the god of athletes and athletics. The world's largest gymnasium was in Pergamum um, at that time because of the worship of him. And the city, besides those, had four patron deities, which were gods that were special protectors of the city. And they were all worshipped, all but one of them, on the Acropolis. I'll show you in a minute. 
and they were Athena, the goddess of wisdom, Dionysius, the god of fertility and of wine and of partying, and Ascalpus, the god of healing, and then Zeus, who was like the highest god in their hierarchy. Um, the god Ascalpus was so important to the city that down in the valley, um, they had actually built a renowned healing center to him the second most famous healing center in the whole Roman Empire, and there was a temple to him there. In fact, Galen, if you've ever heard of Galen, probably the most famous uh, Roman physician, grew up in Pergamum. Um, so, Ascalpus was really important here, and here's how important Zeus was to the city. The altar of Zeus was up on that Acropolis. Um, it was the single largest altar from all of our discoveries in human history, in human history, the largest altar to a god in human history. Um, it was constructed completely of, of marble, that complex. I, I kind of want to show you some photos of it, renderings of what it looked like. You can see the altar there, smoke continually coming up from that. This is a model in a museum in Germany. Here's how big this complex was. It was 117 feet wide, 110 feet deep, 40 feet high. Again, it was made purely of, of marble. I'm the kind of guy, when I read this stuff, it's not meaningful, and I always want to know how big is that. So Brother Samuel got to sit in here with me Friday, not sit. We walked it out. This building is almost exactly, the footprint of this building is the footprint of that because it is about 117 feet wide. It's close, a little more than 110 feet deep. But I wanted to know if it's 40 feet tall, how tall is that? To the top by the ceiling is about 20 feet. So it was twice as tall as this building. So can you imagine the footprint of this was up on that Acropolis? This, and it was primarily, it wasn't even a temple. It was an altar in the center of that to Zeus. So maybe that's why Jesus called this city the throne of Satan. But I think there's actually another reason why he did. Pergamum was the center of emperor worship in the whole province of Asia. It was the center of emperor worship. It had been the capital of the Atalid Empire um, for a while, but in 2012 BC, Attalus I, who saw the Romans conquering Macedonia, decided that if he was going to be on the right side of history, he should align with Rome, and so he threw his lot in with Rome, and because he did that, Rome made that city the prominent city of a developing what would become later province of, 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 of Asia but they made it this, gave them the control of what had developed. Eighty years later, in 133 B.C., the III, he actually gave his kingdom and he gave the capital city to Rome. To Rome, he gave up the entire thing and it became the first capital of the new Roman province of Asia, the first capital. In 29 B.C., the first temple for imperial worship built outside of Rome was built in Pergamum. Was built in Pergamum. It was a temple to Rome and Caesar Augustus. And again, it was the first temple that was built um, outside of Rome to a living Caesar. The governor of this province was not only the governor of the province, he was the high priest of, of, of the emperor. There was a bust of the emperor that was um, in that temple. It was Domitian at the time of Revelation. And there was a sacred fire burning eternally there, just like the eternal fire in Rome. And people would come in regularly, and they would sprinkle incense on their fire, and they would declare, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. That was part of the worship of that city. This emperor worship was so significant in the city that in the second century, they built a second temple to another emperor, to Trajan, in the city. That's how important this was. 
I want you to know the pressure of believers in the city was so intense to worship the gods because if bad things happen in the city, it's because the gods were angry because somebody did not worship them properly, and it was frequently the Christians that were blamed for those things. But not just worshiping the gods, they wanted so bad to keep their prestige with Rome, they did not want the wrath of Rome and of Caesar, and if anybody failed to worship Caesar, like, everything would come down on them. Does that make sense? We don't know exactly what happened to Antipas, but for some reason, he came under the watchful eye and the attention of the governor, was likely summoned to the temple of Caesar, and was told, there's word that you worship somebody else's Lord, and we'd like you to sprinkle the incense here in front of everybody and to say, Kaiser Curios, to which Antipas said, I will not say that. I will stand here and say, Iesu Curios, Jesus is Lord. And because of that, he was killed. And this is a lot like the country we're going to look at this morning, a place where if you do not acknowledge and bow down to the right God, you can lose your life. You can lose your life. And so we're going to focus on one country this morning. We're going to spend some time in prayer for this country and for some other countries. Um, and we're going to ask you, actu, actu, I'm going to actually, man, I brought this up here for a reason. I'm going to actually ask you to, to pray with people out there. If you are an introvert, no, you don't have to pray with somebody next to you. I give you permission to not do that. Um, if you're an extrovert, please don't just grab the introverts and drag them into your prayer group, okay? If you're a hyper-introvert, I would say this, no, you don't have to pray with your spouse, all right? I'm an introvert. I understand um, what it's like to be one. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the country of Nigeria. I'd like to invite uh, my two guests to come up here and join me on stage, and I wanna, while they're doing that, I want to show you a video about Nigeria. Munaji Anabuka get na Iglesia Har Munanan Aka Munaga Uta and Atasha Gidaja Garuro Gabaria. Chinda Mukaiwan and Kudu to Wanchan Tunayan again, Agamincho, Toyan, Mababu Church in the Zasaki Samuanan, Asaki Tachemaza Ataru to me, I suggest a soda, one and Sanani. Babu, Fashi, Uma, and Tapatarchua, Christianchine, Anna Gabadashi, Anna Kokorini in the Karfin Christianche, Aganichewa, and Water. I'd like to introduce our guests. We have Godwin, who's from Nigeria, and Timmy, both from Nigeria. We actually have a pretty large Nigerian contingency group that joins our body in worship every week, um, and we're very honored to have them. I'm honored to have these guys. You can tell they came dressed for church, and I didn't. So 
Uh, can we welcome them? <laughs> okay, we want to talk some about Nigeria. So, Godwin, I'll let you start. Oh, yes, and I need a microphone. That would be really helpful. Invite you up here and not even give you a microphone. Thank you. So, good morning, church. Um, so, we're talking about Nigeria. Nigeria is, um, is a country with a population of over 200 million. Um, we have approximately over 100,000, um, sorry, 100 million Nigerian, Christian Nigerians. Um, then, um, this 100, over 100 million is, amounts to like 46% of Nigerians. Um, also, the primary religion there is Islam because it amounts to like 52%. Um, then also, the persecution level in Nigeria is actually extreme, very extreme. Yeah. Rob, this is a little bit hot um, here, if you could. Okay. Timmy, go ahead. According to um, World Watch list this year, Nigeria has moved up one place from number seven to number six. And this reflects the increasing jihadist violence across the country. The CEO of World Mission says, we've seen increasing episode of persecution in the last 10 years. And according to Open Doors USA, the Christians around the world who were killed for their faith last year was about 90% from Nigeria. Okay, did you get that? 90% of Christians killed last year for their faith was in Nigeria. Um, it was a little over 5,000 believers in Nigeria killed in 2023. It makes Nigeria by far the most lethal country to live in if you're a Christian when you're talking about death, okay? Well, um, since the 21st century, well, we have actually seen like um, around 62,000 Nigerian Christians killed for their faith. Um, or we should also know that uh, we have around 18,000 churches burnt and um, around over 2,000 um, schools destroyed because of um, the Christian faith. Yep, last 23 years. Just in the first month alone of last year, just in the first month of 2023, 1,041 Christians were killed, 7,007 were kidnapped, and 800 communities were seized, uprooted, and the, the Christians sent away by um, Islamic militants. And probably notable among these events last year, and probably something that didn't make most of our American news feeds, is Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, there were coordinated attacks that happened in Nigeria, in the Plateau State, and 198 Christians were killed in that two-day period. Over 500 were injured, and that happened in 64 different communities in that state. That's what Christmas was like for some of our fellow believers in Nigeria. Reporter for BBC this week, by the way, I was reading on this, said, and he's not a believer, he said that what's happening in Nigeria to Christians is the single most underreported story globally, something that's happening that very few people know about. So, okay, Timmy. What is life like 
for Christians in Nigeria, and this brings us to talking about persecution. Persecution is most severe and most prevalent in the North, where militant groups such as the Boko Haram, the ISWAP, and um, Fulani militants inflict murder, physical injury, abduction, and um, sexual violence on their victims. Christians are dispossessed of their land and their means of livelihood making many lives as internally displaced people or refugees. Women and children are particularly vulnerable in these camps. Children suffer health issues and women and girls are vulnerable to human trafficking, as well as direct violence. Christians in Northern Nigeria are arbitrarily treated as second-class citizens and suffer discrimination and hostility. Christians from a Muslim background also face rejection from their own families, pressure to give up Christianity, and often physical violence. There's also abduction for ransom, which has increased considerably over recent years, including the abduction of church leaders. Um, the, the persecution of believers has increased consistently since 2015. Uh, but the government has failed to um, prevent the rise of this violence, which affects all Nigerians, particularly Christians. Um, the government persists in its official position, denying all religious persecutions, and Christians' rights continues to um, be violated with impunity. Um, why Christians continue to be attacked indiscriminately and brutally in the northern part of Nigeria the violence is now increasingly spreading to the southern Nigeria as well. Yeah, here's a map of Nigeria. The yellow is what's called the middle belt. And so a lot of the violence is spreading into that middle belt area. The, um, the plateau state I underline in red is where the Christmas Day attacks happen. So they happen in that middle belt. I'd just like to let these guys share a little bit. Neither of them has experienced personally the kind of persecution we're talking about, but they're, they're knowledgeable and aware of it. Um, Timmy, you lived, what I circled in blue, you lived in Abuja and another city, I forgot, but you were in this middle belt area. And I mean, you talked to me about the, the mosques and just how you experienced, like wh what was the daily sound you were hearing where, where you lived? Um, I was born and raised in Abuja, which is the, um, capital of Nigeria. Um, I haven't had any personal encounter with persecution, but I've read and heard a couple of stories. There was this, um, a woman, she's a pastor. Um, she goes out as early as 5 a.m. every day to like evangelize, preach the gospel. So on this faithful day, she was out as usual as at 5 a.m. and then she got attacked and killed because um, the claim was that she was disturbing the, the peace of the community and some people said she wasn't saying the right teaching, like she wasn't giving out the right teaching of, um, about God. And like I said, she was a pastor. She got attacked and was killed. And um, this extremist, they call for prayers five times a day because 
a typical Muslim prayer five times a day. So there's this like very loud speaker that once it's time for prayer, you get to know that it's time for them to pray, which happens five times a day, every day. Yeah, and you said even around the mosque, it kind of shuts the city down, right? Yeah, typically on Fridays when they do the like general prayer, if there's a major mosque here, and the time for prayer is at 1 p.m. Let's say it's at 1 p.m. If you have anything important to do around that area, it's advisable you go before 1 p.m. or you wait after 1 p.m. because it's, you can't, it can't be accessible because they tend to, some can park their cars, um, not considering um, their neighbor or whoever wants to access the road. So everywhere is blocked. You can't even access anything. So it's advisable you go before time for prayer or after time for prayer. Yeah. yeah. And you had mentioned, so you're, you're in Abuja, which is in this, this belt that, that just Christians had to be just kind of careful, right? You always kind of knew. Yeah, that was um, Sokoto, the just after Gampara. Yeah, but you were up in that area, and you, you felt that, that you had to be... Yeah, I had my compulsory NYC, which is like a one-year program we do after... Is it college? After college. Yes, after college. So I had my compulsory one-year program at Sokoto, which is like the extreme. And that's like a core knot. Like that's where the Muslims are. So it's like... Um, Living there, you just have to be very careful because they say if you're in Rome, you behave like a Roman. So living there, you have to be very careful. You have to dress um, dress as modest as possible. You don't, I'm not a Muslim, so you don't really have to cover your hair, but you can be scantily dressed or um, you just have to be extremely careful. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing, the, the pastor you talked about who was killed, the woman, is she the one that was burned? Yeah, um, this happened two years ago. A college student, um, she was accused of um, blasphemy and she was stoned and burned to death. Yeah. And they actually made video of it and the people who did it were caught on video, correct? Yeah, they were caught on video and the saddest part is still dates. Nothing has been done about it. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't want to focus on that, but that's one of the things in Nigeria is the government being 52% Islamic. The president is a Muslim, yeah. not strong. Um, he has to be moderate, but that the government fails to recognize this, even though there's video, they will not find these perpetrators and bring justice. So, Godwin, you know, um, you know somebody who actually was up north and was preaching the gospel and escaped kind of with their life. Tell us that story. A very, very close friend of mine um, is a full-time missionary in the northern part of Nigeria. Um, that was 2016. He got like a national call to um, do something in central, that's in Abuja. Something his spirit just told him, hey, don't announce this year, this travel. Just go silently and um, go for this field, um, for this work. Not knowing that um, the next day, in the midnight, they are going to come for him. So, a little background to it. He has been affecting the community. He has been doing all the mission work, like putting the gospel out there. 
and then um, they've tried him a lot of times spiritually, do, done everything they can, and they couldn't penetrate to him. Then that midnight, they just came to his apartment. He came to the Bishon base. Hey, where's this guy? I don't want to mention the name. So, um, where is this guy? Hey, where's Mr. A? Come out. They couldn't find him, so they um, they got hold of the the director of the mission base there, and and broke his legs, amputated legs. Um, there are also uh, matches the head, and also that of his wife. Um, that's how he escaped it because what they what they told him was that um, what he heard was that if he were dead that day in, in the mission base, so that day they came, um, he would probably be killed. So, but then because he was not the one, they didn't find him at the base. They actually did something else to his own director. Yeah. Um, that's so actually a very, very bad story. And when we were talking about the Christmas Day massacre, you said you had a friend who was not in one of the villages attacked, but one very close. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so that village is actually on a plateau. Um, plateau is a very large piece of land. A, a, a large piece of land that is on a mountain. So, and um, they are predominantly Christians. That also that place has a lot of mineral resources that is um, not common in some places. So. Uh, what happened was that on that night, they just came in. They had actually rampaged some other villages that were close to the place before now. But obviously, that's not heard in the news. But that fateful day, they came to like four four different villages that are within that, that same vicinity and then destroyed the buildings, burnt everything down, women, um, children losing their, their parents. I mean, both men and women losing body at the mom and their dad that same night, and some had to flee. Um, it was really, really bad. Yeah. Two other quick things. We were talking earlier, Godwin. You said, uh, we don't want to lose, this shouldn't be a hopeless message, right? Because yeah. what were you saying about the blood of those martyrs? There's a famous quote. Um, I'm not, was it Justin Martyr? I'm sure Jason would know, but that the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. But so... What have you seen, even though villages get attacked and all, what? Okay, so uh, what I was telling you this morning, uh, what we should do is that um, the foundation of the gospel is on the blood. And it's still the same blood that is propelling the gospel. That means um, from what I can say and what even my friends told me, uh, the thing is this, there is no village that they will spill the blood that the gospel can be taken out. Know what that means? That the blood is like a seed that has been planted into that ground. So no matter what they do, even if they kill, there's still a root that still comes out. It finds its way. And the good thing is that this, this same blood, people, when they go to church, um, they go to church as if their life depends on it. So when they're worshiping God, they worship God with all tears, everything alike. Even if you burn us, we will still worship God. So the blood is the foundation of the gospel, and the blood still pushes the gospel because the, the prayer of the saints, which are killed for the gospel, pushes, and they, 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 they are like sweet-smelling savour that smells before the throne of God. So I'm not encouraging the blood to be spilled, but then what I'm saying is that irrespective of what they do, the light still shines. Yeah. Like Even in those corners, you still have people who, who will stand firm for God and say, no matter what you do to us. In fact, I, I think I shared a story about a lady 
Um, so what happened that on that fateful day? They were actually traveling in the corners around in the north northeastern part, Bauchi. Um, they got stopped by the Boko Haram people. I'm like, oh, where are the Christians in this bus? There were actually three of them. They got to the first lady, hey, you have to deny Jesus. And she said no, that she wasn't going to deny. So they brought out the chainsaw and said that, okay, if you don't, um, if you don't deny Jesus, we are going to use this chainsaw on you. And she said she wasn't going to deny Jesus. And they actually took off her head with that chainsaw. They were about doing the same to the second one before um, the military people heard about it and then came. Before before they came, obviously, you know, they, they hear they hear rumors and they they fled. So the the th my point is this there are people who actually um stick their life and say whether it be life or death, I'm not ready to um leave this gospel because this gospel is their life. Yeah. So in in increasingly in the middle belt and in the north, if you go to church, it's serious, right? You're going because you know something could happen to you, right? Well, yes. So, and the, th the way it is, um, if you go there as a missionary, obviously you know you will not go there as a missionary, but if you go there as whatever you want to go there as, um, you, um, they allow you to practice your religion as long as you don't affect them. The, the, the first hostility starts when you decide to share your faith, when you decide to and reach out to them and say, hey, yes, I know I'm selling, I don't want to mention things because they're sensitive information, but I'm, I know I'm doing this, but then this is how gospel, uh, this is what Jesus can do to you. So the moment you come out and start telling them about the gospel, that's where the hostility starts. Yeah. So they themselves, just like living in China, I had a friend who, who lived in China, said that they won't stop you from going to your church as long as everybody in that church are internationals, you're fine. <laughs> but the moment you reach out to them, that's where the first hostility starts from. Yeah. Okay, we want to pray. Yeah, Timmy, you want to say one more thing? Yeah. Just like you said earlier, um, in the case of the pastor woman who was evangelizing and got killed, that didn't stop the evangelism. Like, till date, people still do it. Go as early as possible or even try to, like, preach to one or two persons. So my point is, the fact that she got killed didn't stop the practice. Yeah. 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 So it's still ongoing. Yeah. Amen. All right. Let's uh, share ways we can pray for Nigeria, if you would. So Timmy, would you, would you start? You can pray eight things for Nigeria. The first, let's thank God for the courageous faith of Nigeria believers who refuse to deny Christ despite the dangers they face. Pray for an end to the violence inflicted by the militant groups across Nigeria. Pray for those who have been abducted for their safety and their return. Pray that various ministries will be able to reach more survivors of violence and abduction with trauma care and survivor training. Um. I also want us to pray for the converts from Islam and that they will be protected from oppression, discrimination from their families, friends, and community. Um, let us also pray for the insurgents to come to know insurgents, yeah, to know come to know the love of Jesus. Uh, then also we should pray for the believers in the Middle Belt region who are facing increasing levels of persecution. Then I will pray for the Nigerian government to acknowledge and 
acknowledge the persecution of Christians and the acts to protect Christians and to seek justice for the past atrocities. All right, here's what we want to do. We want to take a couple of minutes and would like you either alone or with some people around you. Just with those requests in mind and the things we've heard, can we take a couple of minutes and we just want to pray for the, the believers in Nigeria. So. Lord, hear our prayer. We thank you that you do see 
and that you do know, and that you will be victorious in you. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, he will be victorious in the end. All right. Can we honor these guys? Thank them for their willingness. I actually have a small gift for you. I love giving books, so that's for you. I appreciate your time. We're gonna. We're not gonna. We're gonna kind of wrap things up here. On your. Here, here's my challenge. Number one, to be aware. Be aware. Don't let this. We're gonna. I'm gonna wear bracelets for you. Don't let that be the end when your bracelet breaks off, which eventually it will. Be somebody who knows um, about the persecuted church. Lisa has done a lot with this with our website. Um, if you're at home, you can get on this and you can QR code it. There's resources to read, other ways to educate yourself. There's ways you can actually get letters sent to some pastors or people who are in prison. Um, so just avail yourself of all of that stuff. Um, it's on the app. She made it front and center on the church app. So if you have that, you can use that to access these things. Um, we have cards here physically for those that are here. I'm encouraging you to take this home with you. Keep it in your Bible as you do your quiet time throughout the year. Make this a year that you're going to pray for that country. If you're home, two things on the app or on the website. You can, there's, we have three of those cards that are on there, Indonesia, India, and Malaysia. You can get one of those and pray. We're going to have these out next week. So if you weren't here physically, you can actually grab a physical card. And also we're going to, we have in the back, like we've always done the bracelets that are like barbed wire. Encourage you to take one, to take it home, to wear it, to make it a reminder to pray for the persecuted church. Um, they're not easy to put on. Uh, for those of you, uh, if you microwave it, not too much, okay? <laughs> but if you microwave it a little, you stretch it, you microwave it, stretch it, you can eventually get it on. Um, I don't have big hands, but I have a hard time getting getting those on. But I encourage you to, if you can't wear it, hang it, put it in your car or something so you can be in prayer for the persecuted church. Um, John Rice said this, the world never burned a casual Christian at the stake. And I think a question as we leave is this, if we were living in a persecuted area, would you be somebody that they would want to burn at a stake? Or are you the kind of follower of Jesus, you just blend in and nobody would notice who you really are. I think that's a question we all, we all need to ask, right? Godwin said just before the service, he was talking to a friend this morning on the phone in Nigeria about this, and they said, okay, there are true Christians in the South, okay? But he said, do you want to know where the true Christians live in Nigeria? The ones in the North and in that middle belt who were starting their experiences because that's where your faith costs you. So can we be people who, Jesus gave everything, can we be people who live for Him and are willing to be all... And that if he nudges us to share our faith, it doesn't cost you, right? They look at you funny maybe, that we'll do that, okay? So let's be that kind of people. So I want to close with prayer for Nigeria, and then I want to send you. Dear Father, the violence and brutality across Nigeria is unimaginable. Please intervene to stop these evil attacks and work in the hearts of the militants to turn them from hatred to your love. Heal your people who are traumatized by attacks. Give them fresh hope for the future and the means to support themselves financially and socially. Bring about change in the government to protect Christians and help the president and the state governors to work transparently to find lasting solutions to the deepening security crisis in Nigeria. And may they be people who work for justice for all. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. All right, 12, you are sent to be aware of and to remember and to pray for 
the persecuted church. Grab a, a bracelet on the way out. Take your card with you. Good seeing you this morning.